David Hershkovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Jason White is new to the game of cannabis, though he admits to being an occasional user. With experience at Halo brands, like the advertising agency Wyden and Kennedy, where he ran the Nike business in China, and then at Beats by Dre, where he had a chance to learn from marketing guru Jimmy Iovine, he basically had to just take the ball and run with it. In the uncharted world of cannabis, he sits as the recently minted CMO of Cura Cannabis, one of the biggest companies in the world where he's challenged to create something that's never been done before, namely to develop a cannabis brand that carries the aura of his previous clients. In cannabis, this is uncharted territory. With billions of dollars on the table in an industry still figuring out what it may and may not do when it comes to telling its story, the race is on to determine who will be the Nike or Coca-Cola of cannabis. Jason White figures to play a prominent role in this enterprise. As an African-American, he has a larger mission as well, a social agenda to take on the glaring injustice of black incarceration. In our conversation, we learn about doing business in China, the vibe at Beats by Dre, what to make of the fact that women bought twice as much cannabis this year as last, marketing to seniors, and the unique opportunity to shape an industry on the brink of national legalization. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today, my guest is Jason White, CMO of Cura Cannabis. He's had an illustrious career, though still a young man. He has worked <laughs> for Halo Brands and advertising agencies like Saatchi, BBDO, Wyden & Kennedy, Worked with Nike on, on its major campaigns, most recently at Beats by Dre, and uh, that's a, quite a distinction. You know, ready to retire yet or what? <laughs> hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite ready to retire. Not quite. <laughs> so uh, what do you think you're bringing to this heavily regulated industry that, you know, is you, that's extra, that's unique, that's very much Jason White that hasn't been there before? I, I think that as this industry is progressing and evolving, I think what, what I hope to bring to it is a perspective of coming from the outside in rather than from the inside out. And um, the, the analogy I use very regularly is if if we're having dinner and someone comes into that room and we, we all scoot over and we make another we make another seat, you know, we make another place for that person that comes in. And I feel like right now that dinner table has, you know, Beats by Dre, Nike, cars, liquor, beer, everyone's sitting around the table and, and cannabis just showed up. And, and I'm hoping that my job is going to be, everyone's going to say, oh, let's, let's make a seat for Jay and, and let's have cannabis at this table. But, uh, you know, one of the things that I know you're very involved in is the whole cultural aspect of wh wherever you've worked before and, and bringing that into the story. Very much so. 
And here we have this regulated industry that's not like quite like Nike or, you know, the other brands you've worked with. There's, there's lots of limitations of what you can do with regard to individuals and, and marketing strategies. So does that bother you? Do you feel like constrained by all of that? Yes and no. I, I, it was a there's a big learning curve when I came uh, my first couple of months here, I was like, no one will take our money. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and that New was a problem. first for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, learning how to navigate that was, was again, something I had to learn really, really quickly. But, but once you kind of get the hang of it and once you understand that, you know, I believe the consumer is ready for the conversation. The consumer wants to engage. And that's most important, right? Because people will, will pull that information. They'll pull those stories. They'll pull that, um, what we're kind of serving up. But we did have to really rethink how we use different mediums, how we speak, um, what we speak of, and also being very mindful of obviously the age gating and all the things that, that come with this industry. And also just with regard to the branding, you know, how do you create a brand in this industry where right now, I don't know, you know, that, that there are many that really dominate the space. Of course, the, the people who are into it know the difference between Select and some other brand. But, um, you know, to, to tell the story broader, because we know this is growing and more and more states are going to go legal. Just yesterday, Cuomo announced in New York that he's going to really push it for this next year to make that happen. And, and globally as well. So how do you, you know, approach that situation? I think awareness, to your point, is it's minuscule. Uh, as soon as you step out of that kind of dispensary or this industry setting, we just ran numbers. And, I mean, there's single-digit awareness in all over the United States. So on, on one hand, that's incredibly positive, right? We can only go up. You know, there's, there's yeah. a <laughs> tremendous amount of opportunity. Um, but we are still learning how to get that strategy right around where do your dollars have a real impact? Because most brands here, while you hear about these billion-dollar sales and all that, I mean, these are all equity transactions. Nobody's out here spending tens of millions of dollars other than, like, MedMen on, on awareness. But you look at what they did, and it worked, right? They're, they're probably the most known brand in this, in this industry. I guess so, yeah, but they continue to lose money it's, as well. So, you know, this is a whole other story, right? It's a, it's a long game, you know. They're holding real estate in places that will eventually be incredibly lucrative. It, it is a long game, and I think for us, we try to really play that balance. Um, we are trying to speak to the consumer that we already have. We're trying to, you know, being a brand that's really of this industry, being a brand that innovated in this industry, um, we, we think we have to own that space and we have to speak to those consumers and we have to continue to innovate and tell those stories. But we're also finding the balance of like, how do we grow this category? We're seeing women purchase twice as much cannabis this year as they did last year. We're seeing these things. We're seeing, you know... Um, disposable income rising and rising with this consumer. So, Yeah, the consumer base is, is changing rapidly as well. I was just looking at uh, the latest issue of the AARP magazine, which I happen to get when you cross 50, <laughs> you'll get one in the mail. <laughs> and this entire issue is devoted to cannabis. And, you know, this category of, of people 50 and older is like a huge growing, uh, you know, awareness of it. A lot yep. of them are the boomers, obviously, so more comfortable with the idea of it in the in the past. But certainly for health and wellness aspect of it, it's, yep. it's there as well. So uh, question is, so you have like this really broad spectrum of audience. Like when you're at Nike, for example, you know a little bit more about who your audience is. It's not everyone necessarily, mm -hmm. right? You have right. smaller demographic or 
or narrower demographic, but here you have this like massive demographic. So do you approach that as like a segmenting the market? Like, yeah. yes, we, I, I love that question because it's one that we continue to debate internally. You know, you want to speak to everyone because you, there's just, it, it's all opportunity. They're all potential consumers. And so many people are curious about, um, cannabis and the plant, but, for us, one, you know, we've been pretty good about aligning ourselves to music and being a brand that that really um, has a voice in that space, and we're going to continue. Who, who's that. Select has done Select, that? yeah. So what's and, some examples of that? Um, we were the first cannabis sponsor of Fader Fort at South by Southwest. Um, we were a sponsor of Splash House in Palm Springs, which was a little mini music festival we did there. Um, and, you know, we continue to be in talks with several other festivals and that's a strategy for us because to your point, um, that's a great way to segment, you know, we all love music and you can look at all those verticals of music and the verticals of the consumers who follow that music. And you can really kind of develop your, your messaging and your strategy based on that consumer. So what else, you know, for example, the seniors, would you also think about that or would you? Yeah, I mean, for example, um, you know, we did an event at, at Coachella this past year and next year we're going to go to Stagecoach too. You know, that's, that's an older, you know, less diverse audience, but that's important because to your point, um, when you look at where the growth is coming from, you know, that, that, that audience is, is growing almost as fast as women. So you had, you know, like, in your previous jobs, you had all these like tools to work with, and here there's like fewer. So, okay, you got music. <laughs> What's next? You know what I mean? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you I can do. do that. But other people also see that, and they're also in the same space, right? Trying to be present in in those situations. But you know, because I'm thinking, well, a lot of the players themselves, like the rappers or the musicians mm -hmm. or um, athletes, even today certainly once they retire, are moving into the industry. So a lot of the people that might have worked for you in the past are now working for themselves, yeah. their own brand. And even on uh, Instagram, you know, everybody's got their millions of followers. They don't need the help as much the as they brand. used to, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think that there's sort of two things I would say there. One is product is still king in this category. And you got to make a great product. And we've been very fortunate to have a CEO, Cameron Forney, who is just a you know maverick. He pushes, and he has done tremendous work in the space. And um, we're going to continue to do that. We you know we were at Hall of Flowers in in April and really debuted kind of a, a whole new line that we'd worked on, um, and we're still bringing that to market. But that was a, a really great step in, in innovation for us. And then um, on the other side of that, when you think about the the artists and and all the folks in culture who are coming to cannabis, I think I still stand by the opinion that a lot of folks are trying to bring culture to cannabis and they're paying a lot of money for it. And what we are trying to do is bring cannabis to culture. We're, we have people that we work 10, 15, 20 years with who are like-minded, who we share their values. And those are the folks that we're going and working with. The reason why we were at... Um, uh, South by Southwest at Fader for it was because I was speaking at a conference in Canada and Vice was actually going to be our partner at South by Southwest. They backed out. I was standing next to the president of Fader. I was standing next <laughs> to Andy Cohn. And I said, hey, Andy, you want to do something together at Fader and, or at South by? And he said, you know, Jay, he's like, my wife died of cancer and cannabis, it made her um, last years incredibly um, special. And he said, I will absolutely do that with you. And that's how we ended up at Fader for it. 
Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting to find that, you know, so many people have had a relationship with the plant, uh, but weren't able to really tell anyone about it all these years, right? That they this was kind of stigmatized underground. Um, what about your relationship with the plant? How how does that evolved? Uh, definitely consumer. Uh, have been since high school. Never uh, a, a sort of regular user. And I think for me, the fascinating part of my journey into this personally has been truly learning the the real science behind it mm. learning the depth of it and uh, i mean i was just having a conversation earlier today about how much more help i need to learn it it's it goes and goes and goes and you know i heard i heard steve d'angelo on your show and i think about what he's done for you know 30 plus years i'm like oh my god <laughs> how do you catch up to that but definitely consumer um and um trying to learn the science yeah, and there's so much there, the science. I've been learning about it myself as having been a consumer, but really just interested in the end product, nothing about how it gets there. <laughs> and, you know, now that I'm meeting more and more people who are involved and have a history as, uh, you know, growers and the, the science, it's like fascinating. And to, to find out the story of these strains and how they evolved. Uh, yeah, and and I think what's really cool right now is there's people – putting good money and good storytellers around those stories, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard a couple of different films that are in the work right now around the history of some of the strains that shaped culture, shaped hip-hop. Um, so we're looking at partnering on some of those projects. And, you know, it's funny, like, even as I was learning, when I learned that you have an endocannabinoid system in your body, you know, we, we had some writers working on that concept. And one of the funny things they came back with was, like, as you as you educate a consumer about this, it's like, yes, you have something in your body that sounds like cannabis, <laughs> naturally in your body, um, and we're just trying to make light in in order to make human some of the facts around you know how we interact with this plant, and what it means, and what the science is. Totally, that's so important. The cannabinoid brain connection is really what makes it work and what exactly. makes it help in the health and wellness side as well. So. It's amazing to realize that we're actually built for this. We're made for this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things that uh, you haven't mentioned yet, but I know you're heavily involved with, that's also part of the cultural side of the story, the Cannabis Justice Initiative, which uh, tell me, let, let me hear in your words. What sure. Um, Possible Plan is a um, 501c3 that we've just launched that through Select, but it's really an industry initiative, and we're hoping okay. to position it that way because what I found when I worked in the advertising industry and the marketing side of the world, um, I, I did a lot on diversity initiatives. And what I found was, unfortunately, there's not a lot of folks doing that work, but they're doing tremendous work. And it's almost like they're competitive to one another for resources. And what I had hoped for a long time in that side of the world was some sort of way to collaborate and merge and, and, and sort of work as one. And, and they're still working on that. But coming into um, cannabis, as I call it, the first 21st century industry in a lot of ways, we can build it the right way now because we can build it from scratch. And I look at well, who's doing this great work and I don't want to compete with them. I don't want to take money out of their hands. What I want to do is I want to sit above those folks as an industry platform. I want to raise money for them. I want to raise awareness for them. And I want to help shine the light and the resources on those doing the work, those doing the heaviest amount of lifting that are really affecting change. And our first focus is um, on incarceration and expungement. And we're also, you know, moving that that needle all the way over towards 
um, how we help you know women and people of color get access to investing in this industry and and, and being a part of how it's going to grow and and changing the narrative of where everyone feels it might be right now, which is a pretty closed audience. Definitely. And it's certainly like hugely important. And I know there are other groups. I mean, Steve D'Angelo, you mentioned yep. earlier, who was on one of my first podcasts. Yep. Um, involved with one as well. Yeah, so, Last Prisoner Project. Yeah. So how is how are they different or are they working together? Is it essentially a lobbying group? Is it what what does it do and how does it work? Well, we you know, I, I always say like we are not activists, you know, nor are we banks like but but we are a company that's entrepreneurs and, and we have a really strong group of marketers. And what we know how to do is create awareness. We know how to create impact. So for us, looking at someone like uh, an organization like Last Prisoner Project, we would actually raise awareness and funding for a project like that. Um, and it's actually, this is the first time I've spoken about this publicly. There's there's, there's a, a man in, who's actually doing life sentence right now who we are um, working with um, a partner of mine who made a lot of work for us at, at Beats by Dre. He's a filmmaker. And he's working on a film around him and some other folks who have been affected by the plant. And that person is actually a part of the Last Prisoner Project. So our efforts are going to eventually help them and help what they're doing with him. So it's all connected. It's a value chain. And we're trying to sit at the at the point of fundraising, at the point of amplification, at the point of awareness. That's great. Uh, you know, I'm just concerned also... You know, this, people can. It's, it's. It's. Everyone has good intentions, but you know, getting actually results is yeah. sometimes a lot harder. It takes a lot of time and and attention, right? Yeah, I, I mean, even coming out of the gates and starting to fundraise, like you know, you you think people are going to realize the, the 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 depth of the issue and the importance of the moment and open their wallets up, and that's not the case. I mean, I now have time in my calendar every other day that is specifically for fundraising <laughs> um, because you got to do the work and people are not sitting around waiting to hand you money. And I think the more we can put emotion around the issue, like telling stories like the one we're making now, the film we're making now, um, that's when people start to really take it personally and, and touch them personally and we're going to start to see that change. We have had um, some folks come to the table and write checks, which is amazing, um, and but we need a lot more. And, and and you're right. It's it's not easy. And and you're African American, and I know that's a big part of the initiative because the, the disproportionate number of African Americans who have been jailed, incarcerated, for, yeah. incarcerated for possession, nonviolent crimes, who are many are still jailed. But there's also you know white non-African Americans who have been locked up as well for the same kind of behavior. Is does your initiative inc include them, or is it limited to just African Americans? Our focus is on those who have been disproportionately affected by cannabis prohibition. So that is naturally going to be a larger focus on black and brown individuals. Um, but we're also, we want to help everyone who's been impacted by this. So like, for example, if National Expungement Week, you know, we're not looking for black people to help, you know, expunge their records. We're looking for people who have been, you know, who have these records because of the cannabis prohibition, regardless of what you look like. Um, I think what what we find though is, you know, black and brown people are just massively disproportionately affected, and um, that's that's a wrong that we have to fix. So we are focused there, yes. And uh, just to change the subject slightly, that I wanted to move on to because uh, we were talking a little bit earlier, just when you had arrived, about the um, you know the. the 
sort of standing out in your various communities <laughs> where you have worked in the past, yes. uh, from Portland to China. So I'm interested in China. Yeah. Actually. So as an African-American in China, you went to help set up the Wyden office to work with Nike on the Olympics. Yeah, right? I was an employee number 17, I think, in 2006 for Wyden Kennedy Shanghai. And I was there to run the Nike business. We had about two and a half years to get ready for the Beijing Olympics. And um, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, I had just gotten there. And, you know, there was times when you'd be standing at a red light and people would touch your hair. You know, it would be. Oh, that's strange. Yeah, because it was back then it was that uh, you were that different. And also you had like migrant workers who weren't from Shanghai. They were from the way, way outskirts. Africa, and, right? The China has a lot of relationships with Africa. But I mean, even I'm talking about local Chinese who oh, are from way outskirts of Shanghai who had not seen a person of color and, and you know, or, or a black person has to say, and, and were like, I mean, literally I've had my hair touched at a red light. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think for me, what I loved about that experience was I never once felt racism. I felt being different. I felt, um, I felt mistakes around assumption, but I didn't feel a, a, a negative energy towards me. One of my favorite things was I would we'd walk into the room and there's a, there's a term lauban, lauban means boss. So we'd walk into the room and then, especially as an agency, you know, we're going in to see these clients and they 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 would walk up to us and they would say niha lauban to. The person to oh. my left or the person to my right. It's like, no, 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 I'm the lava. <laughs> That's a good strategy. Yeah, no, I've, you can play that too, right? I've seen people, you know, like, you know, you sort of sit in a room and you think you're talking to the yeah, right exactly. person. But the right person is actually just sitting there quietly listening. Exactly. And that's how it I, kind of work it that way. Those. And also, you know, I don't speak Mandarin. I wish I did, but I speak a little bit. And oh, really? That's great. I, I, I know enough to be dangerous. And <laughs> and, and those, that was also, you know, similar situations where my team who I loved I, they're all my kids they're all over the world not doing great jobs and they would um, be having a conversation and they would think I wouldn't know what they're talking about and then I would chime in in Chinese and they'd be like oh and then they would switch to Shanghainese uh, <laughs> like no you're not you're not invited not going there, right? <laughs> couldn't catch up yeah that. so what about China and cannabis I mean not that you were you know that was part of your world back sure. then necessarily but um, because I isn't hemp grown there like to huge quantities CBD of that is a huge platform there. Hemp is grown there, and the CBD business, especially in beauty, is about to explode. Um, there's a woman named Lin Lin who is a good friend of mine who's always been an innovator in in the cultural space in Shanghai. She I think is now like the head of the of the beauty trade commission or something to, to that effect, mm. and she's really pioneering um, how CBD goes into beauty there. And do you feel like, are you working with your old connections in that respect to help you in your current job or is that Not totally yet. separate? We haven't, you know, the, the U.S., there's so much work to do that I try to keep one eye and one ear constantly to China because it is so important in the global economy. It is so important in everything we do. Um, but we're not there yet where those worlds are, are touching. Other than manufacturing, I mean, so many of our, our um, products are made there. And we have an incredible facility, an incredible partner in 14th Round that makes all of our uh, work down in southern China. Yeah. Well, today there's an article in Leafly about vape cartridges and how they're made in China and then sent to L.A. and found uh, – 
you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands and, you know, trying to discover what happened, why is it dangerous or right. what is the situation with vaping right now. So I imagine that's something that you're, you're talking internally about constantly. Like, how do you manage that kind of bad publicity that's coming around with that? Yeah, I mean, if if you're not aware of what's going on in vaping right now, then you you're living under a rock. And <clears throat> I think that um, the it's an incredibly sad situation for those who've been sick. I think, but what the the biggest thing I believe that will come of this is we have to shut down the black market. It has to go away. This illicit market is not healthy for anyone, and banning vaping is going to push people back to the illicit market. So. I feel very strongly about that. I know my peers feel very strongly about that. And we're doing our best to make sure that the the products are safe, the the hardware is safe, the oil is safe. We're doing our best to provide a regulated market because that is the way forward. This is going to happen. Cannabis is going to happen. And we need to look at it as an industry that we can do the right thing with and do the right thing by rather than um, not taking action and letting an unregulated market create the damage that it's creating. So, I mean, the best solution would be legalization, right, on a national level. So, therefore, you'd be able to have inspections and all the proper 100%. requirements around, you know, the product, making sure it's clean and made, you know, like any other product that we're trust 100%. on. The so, what what can be done? <laughs> you know, <they> still, <laughs> is that... Well, we're, I mean, we're... 33 states are medicinal, 11 are recreational. Um, 68% of the U.S. population agrees that we should legalize cannabis. Um, we have to get there. And obviously everyone is kind of revealing their agenda on the Democratic side right now. Um, and I believe we will get there. But it's it's not going to happen tomorrow. But, you know, there's a ton of positive movement towards that. We're, it's doing incredible things for the economy. But um, we we got a long way to go. Yeah. And in the meantime, we're kind of stuck in, in in this space right now. So what, you know, how do you fight back against the, you know, just the day-to-day -day bad publicity around vaping? And by extension, it, you know, it extends to the cannabis overall, right? Because the people who aren't that familiar with the whole product and what's actually what you're getting or just lump it all together into one big thing. So let's just, oh no, let's, you know, so now the arguments are coming back against, against legalization, right? They're using that. There's, there's so many questions about cannabis and there's so many ways into, um, I mean, we're trying to birth an industry, you know, and there, there's always going to be questions around every aspect of it. And I think that, um, the brands and the companies who are doing it right are are doing it with all the intents and the responsibility that they know how. And and I commend that and I commend all of our peers who are doing that. And um but but this this is how industries are born. Like th there is conflict, there is conversation, there's debate, and there's regulation. And that's we're in the process. And I think we have to be okay with that. So, um I wanted to talk about more about China a little bit. Let's go there. I, it's it's one of my favorite one of my favorite things in the world. Those are my people. So what what did you learn anything you know there that you could apply to what you're doing today? I say it all the time that if not for my experience in China, there's no way I would survive in cannabis. You know. Wow. Let me hear. China is it's so entrepreneurial. You have to pivot so quickly. The timelines are absurd. The budgets were tiny at the time. Timelines are meeting very fast. Very fast, you know. Um, China, you know, like in, in cannabis right now, 
you know, you look at what's happening in the marketplace, whether that's products, whether that's, you know, what's what's trending in the hype market, you know, and you realize how quickly you have to move, you know? Like if you look at CBD, right? When 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 the um the uh hemp bill was passed, um, which I'm completely blanking on the, the Mitch McConnell, yeah, Kentucky. Well, when when that passed last December, Moscow Mitch. You know, the the, <laughs> the FDA came out and said no ingestibles, right? And then boom, topicals everywhere, right? The industry shifted that quickly. And um I think there's so many examples of that in this industry. And I learned that in China. I learned that in China because you had a, a, a government that was hugely involved and, and hugely regulating in the advertising market, the consumer products market, and you had this changing perspective. Like they used to say that there was a generation gap every five years in China mm. because there was that much change. It was moving that fast. You had a generation holding an iPhone whose parents were in the cultural revolution, you know, like – Go home and have a conversation <laughs> with your parents with that gap between you. And um, so I think all of that we learned in how to pivot, um, how to be very entrepreneurial in both in the business and also the way that China deals with relationships, the way that business is done is very cannabis. It is about – It's less contracts, more insider, handshakes. Insider, trust, no trust. It's, it, is, it is you know tribal in a lot of ways. And I've learned – a lot from that space that I apply now. One of the things you talked about is like going with your gut, <laughs> like knowing, you know, forget about it. Yeah, it's it. terrifying. And, you know, now, <laughs> now we live in a world of analytics and algorithms. And so, you know, everything is like numbers of how many followers, which is anti-gut, you know, yeah. like I, my business prior was paper magazine Absolutely. and that's what I did all my life was like respect. gut, you know, like thinking this person is really going to be a star or should be a star even if they don't make it, they're really amazing. Yeah. Uh, so that was gut driven. But then as time went on, that became less possible because the, you know, everybody was looking at what's on Instagram or right. some other social as the gut. So are you feeling that that's something you could still do today or is that are you more I absolutely I will never I will never change from working that way you know I think we have to be smart we have to evolve right I, I think I guess to, to, to answer your question another way right now there's a ton of data right but data is just data and you got to know what's data and what's actually information. And when it's information, that all has to go into how you listen to your gut. That all has to go into how you make decisions. But when you start just using data as a cover your ass, when you start just using numbers to justify your decisions so you don't get in trouble, so you don't have to take a risk, like that's not the game I play. I have no interest in that conversation. Well, yeah, that's a familiar, you know, from agencies, right? Because that's like the safe bet. Right. Why take a chance when you know you have somebody and that's like the whole star game that we play today? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll never Nike forget. Nike is a big. I, I was just about to say, I'll never forget. I think it was my 30th birthday, 34, I don't know, some birthday. And I took Dan Wyden to lunch for my birthday present to me. Nice. <laughs> yeah. And we were on the elevator. I just moved back from China and I was globally running a Nike business. It was like my first week back. And we were in the elevator and he looked at me and my floor was five and his floor was six right so we're going up and he says um he says jason nike will always be the lifeblood of this agency and he looked at me he said and it's yours now and then the elevator doors opened and he turned and walked out 
I guess he was getting out before I was. He turned and walked out. And then as the doors were closing, he turns back, he looks at me, he goes, so don't fuck it up. Yeah. <laughs> and then he just had this huge smile and the doors closed. And then, then that, and then that moment I was like, oh my God, like, did that just happen? But, but, but what, what that meant in so many layers, if you know that man, was like, go do your best. You know, you're in the role for a reason. Go do you and lead this thing and drive this thing and make decisions and be bold and be courageous. Don't call me for, you know, decisions I just empowered you to make. Yeah, I interviewed Dan Wyden once. I love in that. Portland. Man. Yeah, that I was love really that, a big thrill of mine. Someone I'd always wanted to talk to. So that was great. But then, you know, so you work for him and then you work for another kind of brilliant marketer, Jimmy Iovine, right? Yeah. How How is he different and what did you learn from him? Uh, how they are the same is they are relentless bulls in a china shop when, when they have a vision. And I, I, I hopefully have stolen that from them. You know, they're uncompromising when they have a vision. Um, how they are different. Um, I've never seen someone see around corners better than Jimmy Iovine. Mm. Um, he just, he he has a an instinct for what's next and and he's very good at then building an empire around that and making sure that's next <laughs> um but but he he's he's phenomenal at what he does he's phenomenal at seeing what's going to be next and to the point where we all i mean the, the president of the company luke wood who's a, a great mentor to me i mean we we trusted that for a very long time you know and when when, when jimmy left the the company after he kind of you know, moved on and cashed out and all those great things. Um, so you stayed with Apple? I stayed point? for another two years. Okay. And, um, you know, we still had a lot of that dialogue around that, that the, the way Jimmy saw around corners. And, and luckily Luke Wood, who was the president, also has that talent because he worked with Jimmy for so long and he's great in his own right. Um, but but I think that's his superpower. So you, did you go to Beats just before it was sold or how I got a it's, year? It's funny, you know, I got to Beats about, I think it was probably a month before Beats was sold. And you had no idea? And I got to and, Cura, and two months later, it was I, sold. I was going to say that. So what's the story? Inside so you need to stay close to me. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so was that a good thing in your mind when it was sold the first time? You know, I, I mean, I felt you probably wanted to be, no one told you, I guess, right? You didn't know anything. As a, Cura, I knew. Cura, Cura you I knew. Because we you were, were there already. I, I knew we were building towards some sort of transaction, right? But Beats, I had no idea. And it, and it was, quite honestly, it was a bit... It was a shock and I was a little bit bummed because, I, you know, one, I was thought I was going to be a part of a big financial windfall, right, which I was not. Mm. And two, um, I, I was excited to go work for this rogue brand, you know, that was like kind of giving the middle finger to the world. <laughs> and I think when I got there, luckily, that attitude remained and that remained for years. Um, but I think what was great about the Apple acquisition was – they they brought in a tremendous amount of rigor that we would have had to learn on our own over time, and they just they just shortened that learning curve, you know, to to like just the science of Apple, and we got to take that, compartmentalize it, and then expand it around the globe pretty quickly versus tripping on our own feet as we built this big global company. But uh, it was working pretty well when when they bought yeah, it. Yeah, right? no, they got a nice well, but it was still oh yeah, I mean. Th that the brand was on top of the world, you know. Um, but I, but I do think we were still learning how to go truly global, and I think Apple kind of was a was a, a part of helping us figure that out.
And today, do you feel like they're on it? That's doing well without you, or just I, I you know, they just <laughs> launched the uh, Power Beats Pro, um, which is a phenomenal product. I wear it everywhere. I've had it on all over New York City. This is my first time to test it out as I walked block after block after block. And yeah, but the brand's in great shape. I think the talent they have is phenomenal. Um, a lot of a lot of the folks that I really respected are still there. Some have left, you know. And and I think one of the most fun parts for me about the crew. That was that was Beats when when all of us were at Beats. Is everyone now is is kind of like pursuing their superpowers. So when I look at our business coming into cannabis, when I had to blow the dog whistle and get so much work done so quickly, everyone came out of the woodwork. I mean, our production team was either if you weren't former Widen Kennedy or former Beats, you weren't in the room. <laughs> you know, from presentation designers to the director of our commercial, he was a former writer to the team that I used um, creatively. One was from Wyden Shanghai. One was from Wyden Portland. For, for which company? For, for how we built the creative for Select. Oh, for know. Select. Okay, yeah, so you we, recruited people I, from I everywhere. I just blew the dog whistle and, and everyone showed so up. I really and we got mad at you. We like, contracted. <laughs> I didn't steal anyone. Everyone was already contracting. Everyone was already in the free market, to be, to be clear. Okay. But, no but we, got our, we got the band back together. And it was, a, it was a great thing to see how everyone had grown up into you know, these, these studs, you know, and all, and all of the expertises that they had chosen. And they didn't feel like the cannabis industry was just too rogue for them, you know, no, not established enough. We're talking enough. Beats people and Biden <laughs> candy people. <laughs> Let me add it. <laughs> exactly. Let me add it. And then, so well, then you said you were, you went to your, to, um, to select. Select thinking that's where you're going to be at select, right? Yeah. Um, selecting the, the plan was always, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna build this brand and we're gonna make this the first major global cannabis brand and that remains to be the plan and um, the only shift is you know obviously we were acquired and um, uh, versus going public or some of the other options that were on the table um, but but it's been phenomenal you know everyone asks me how is it how is it how is it you know is it different is it do you hate it do you love it and I tell you you know there are hard days but there's not a day where I didn't want my job. You know, like it's it's phenomenal what we're doing, what we're building that will live forever. Because here you're, you know, you have to invent everything. Whereas yeah. the other places you're sort of walking there in There were and models keeping, in place. Yeah, yeah there were things you kind of have to refresh and maintain. This is like every day you're like, well, what are we going to do about that? Because that's never been done before. Let's go build that. Let's go figure out, you know, when I got to select, like even just how we built marketing within the organization, they were phenomenal product people, phenomenal sales team. And the brand had great heat with, you know, the the the, the kind of the canvas community. But when we had to really operationalize, you know, I remember the sales team was like, well, you know, marketing really needs to improve on on getting us materials on time and, and you know, helping us kind of service retailers, dispensaries. And I was like, cool, well, sh well who runs marketing operations? And everyone was like, well, what's marketing operations? <laughs> so I was like, you do. Right? Okay. Another, I guess I do. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I blew the White and Kennedy dog whistle and I brought in a lot of folks from, you know, former White and Kennedy world to help build that group out. Well, Jason White, thank you so much. I feel like I can't wait to see what you're doing now that I've met you and I'm going to be keeping a good eye on it. So, Thank you, David. Pleasure to be here. Looking and, forward. And congratulations to you on, on a career of just tremendous impact. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at shopburb. And subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash light culture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Mm -hmm.